I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Corinthians chapter 13, this morning we are looking at just the first three verses of this very familiar chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Please give your attention to God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And for a moment, if you were an alien from another world, and you were on a spaceship parked outside of our planet's nearby regions, and you were listening in to the culture trying to understand what these creatures are, these human beings that populate this planet, and you were to tune in to just one, imagine you're, just, you're as an alien, your particular responsibility was, was to listen to popular music and to discern from popular music what it is, this abstract thing, that these human beings call love. They're obsessed with love, obviously, from listening to the music. But what is this love? How would you define it after listening to hours and hours of popular music? Is it a warm, fuzzy feeling? Is it desire? Is it infatuation? Is it admiration? Is it sentimentality? Or is it just another word for sex? Probably the the last one is probably the conclusion they'd come to from listening to a lot of popular music. When I was a teenager, one of the big hits of that era was a song by the group Foreigner called I Want to Know What Love Is. In some ways, I felt like that was a cry of a generation, and it's still the cry of the current generation. I want to know what love is. The world is so confused and really have a very wrong concept of what love is. Well, this isn't a new issue. This goes way back to the beginning of humanity. Matter of fact, we're talking about the first century here as we're studying 1 Corinthians, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. If you go back to the first century when this was written, Greek was the common language of the culture. And in Greek, interestingly, Greek is in many ways a much more specific language than English is, and in Greek they had multiple words for the word love. You probably know this, that they had several different words. We use one word to translate what they use several different words to translate because they wanted to be more specific as they wrestled with the fact that the way that you love a sunny day or the way that you love chocolate or the way you love your wife or the way you love your kids or the way you love your country, these are all different kinds of love, and we mean something slightly different by each one of them. And so The word phylos, you probably know, the word we have, Philadelphia. Uh, Phylos was uh, a kind of love that you have 
Brotherly love, of course, is the, the common definition for it. And it's the kind of love that you have for your friends or the kind of love you have for your coworkers or when you talk about loving State College or loving Penn State or loving America, that's the kind of love you're talking about, phylos. Or storge, which is the family love, the way that you love your spouse, the way that you love your children, the way you love your parents. Of course, eros, that we get the word erotic from, it was the kind of physical desire that we call love. The, the sexual drive is eros, love. It's, it's what we, the word we would use for lust. But then there was the word agape. And I'm sure that if you've been around the church very long, you've heard that Greek term thrown around. It's the word in the New Testament that's used most often for love, which is interesting because before the first century, It was a very rare and obscure word. The Greeks didn't use the word agape very much. I think, as a matter of fact, as linguists have tried to discern what what did they mean, what did the Greeks mean when they used the word, or the Romans mean when they used the word agape, they have a hard time nailing it down because they just didn't use it very often. And I think uh, most linguists would say it probably meant something kind of like a vague sense of affection. But what's interesting, when you come to the New Testament writings, The New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul especially, but all the New Testament writers kind of adopted that word. They said to the the Greek culture, said, well, you're not using this word, and we want to talk about love in an entirely different way than the way you think about love, so we're going to take this word that you're not using, and we're going to infuse it with a profound, deep, powerful meaning, and it became the word for love that is used in the New Testament. It became the word that was used for love in the early Christian church, agape, the kind of love that God gives to his people, that is of a very different nature and character than the other kinds of love that the world knows. 1 Corinthians 13 is probably one of the best-known passages in Scripture, and so I approach it with some trepidation. When you know something so well, sometimes it's hard to really speak about it in, in meaningful and profound ways. It is a meditation on agape, It is an attempt by the Apostle Paul, and a beautiful attempt, to try to tell us what love is, to answer that age-old question. It's usually read out of context. I'm sure you've heard it in many weddings. But the context to 1 Corinthians 13 is very important. You'll remember this section of 1 Corinthians starts in chapter 12, and it's all about the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to the church. The gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to the church. Remember the the lessons that we've learned from chapter 12. That the Holy Spirit, the person, the, the, the third person of the Trinity, dwells with the church, in the church. He is with and in believers. And he gives to every believer at least a gift, maybe multiple gifts. Likely multiple gifts. And... Those gifts are given to each believer, not the same gift to every believer. Matter of fact, there's a wide variety of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to different believers, but every believer gets a gift. Every believer has the Holy Spirit, and every believer has gifts to the Holy Spirit. And those gifts, as we saw last week, are to be used for building up the body. They are to be used in concert. They're to be used in, in unity. They are to be used... Whatever gift they are, no matter how diverse they are, they are to be used for the one purpose of building up the body, the church, as we are the body of Christ. And we've seen, and we've begun to see, and we'll get into it much more in chapter 14, 
But the Corinthian church, this early church, was, was in many ways, as we've seen throughout this entire letter, was a messed up church. And one of the things that, that was very wrong in the Corinthian church is that they were treating some of the members who had the more splashy gifts, the flashy gifts, the, the supernatural gifts that were given in the first century during the time when the apostles were on earth until the scriptures were complete, that some of them, that while those gifts were operating in the early church, people who had those gifts were being treated as though they were something special. Or if they had those gifts, they were acting like they were something special in the eyes of God, that they were really the, the super spiritual in the church in Corinth, the ones who were the elite, the spiritually elite. And it was instead of these gifts being used in such a way that they would build up and strengthen and unify the church, they were being used in a way that divided the church. And Paul was deeply concerned about this, and that's what we're dealing with in the background, the context of this section. So before Paul gets into the specifics of the problems that they had in the church in Corinth and the use of these gifts of the Spirit, he pauses significantly before he gets into details to talk about love, agape, because this is what they were really missing. If they understood what agape meant, they wouldn't be having all these problems with how the gifts of the Spirit are being used in the life of the church. And so he says at the end of Chapter 13, before I get into all that, before I get into, dig into the details, I want to show you a more excellent way. I want to show you as something that's of much higher priority, something that's much more core and central to the life of the church. I want to talk about agape. And so we're going to be looking at the primacy of love over the spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives to the church. In this section, these first three verses, Paul refer, refers to four spiritual gifts at least four spiritual gifts that the Corinthians no doubt were arguing Or Why does he choose these ones? I think it's because they were spiritual gifts that were causing some of the problems in, in the church in Corinth. This, these were the spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, that the Corinthian Christians were arguing over, saying, what, you know, this makes me more important than you because I have this gift or that gift. And so Paul mentions speaking in tongues, prophecy, miracles, and the gift of giving. And what he does in each case is he exaggerates them. He takes them to the nth degree and basically says, okay, these gifts that are dividing you, what if I had the greatest example of this gift ever given to a follower of Christ? Where would I be? What would that say about who I am? What would that say about my rank in the kingdom of God? What would that say about how I compare to you? And so that's really the question he's asking. And so he begins with the gift that was probably at the, at the very center of the conflict, as we'll see in chapter 14, which is the gift of tongues. And so the first point he makes is that the gift of languages is nothing unless it is accompanied by and, and comes out of a heart filled with agape, this love that is unique. Unless it is driven by agape, the gift of languages is nothing. He says in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, just hypothetically think, if I were to speak in the tongues of men, all the tongues of men, even the tongue of, of angels. Now, as we saw a couple weeks ago, that the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost, if you look at the book of Acts and how it 
appears in the book of Acts. This was a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit given to believers where they were able to speak in a language that was heard and understood by others but never actually learned by the speaker. Or some would say that it was ability to hear in other languages, a language that you had never learned. Probably it was a gift given to the speaker to speak in a language that he had never learned before. But that's the gift that had been corrupted and abused in the church in Corinth, as we'll see later. And because they were abusing this gift of speaking in unlearned languages that was given as a gift by the Holy Spirit, because they were abusing it, their worship services had become chaotic and frenzied and unintelligible. Actually, as we saw, looking at chapter 12, their worship service were looking, services were looking a lot like pagan worship services as a result. In pride, they were using the gift of tongues as a sign of greater spiritual understanding, insight, maturity, greater spirituality. And this, this Prideful abuse of the gift of speaking in tongues was dividing the church. Well, Paul mentions here not only the tongues of men, speaking in languages of men that hadn't been learned, he speaks not only of that gift of the Holy Spirit, but he speaks of speaking in the tongues of angels. What is that? Well, we don't get any help going anywhere else in Scripture. There is no mention anywhere else in Scripture of the angels speaking in a language that is different than the tongues of men. As a matter of fact, when you see angels in the historical narratives of Scripture, when angels show up on the scene, they speak in the language that their listeners would understand. They spoke in Hebrew in the Old Testament. They spoke in, in Aramaic in the New Testament, maybe Greek in a case or two. But they spoke in the languages of that culture, of the men that they were speaking to, so that they could be understood What's interesting is I don't think Paul intends to indicate that there is a different language in heaven or that angels speak a different language. That's not his intent here. One thing to understand these first three verses in in 1 Corinthians 13 that you must understand is that he's speaking in hyperbole. Like I said, he's speaking, what if you could imagine the greatest possible gift of the Holy Spirit? We're going to look at these splashy supernatural gifts of the Spirit. What if we had the greatest example of that ever given to, to mankind? So he says, if I were to speak in the tongues of men, Or how about even better than that? If I could even speak in the tongues of angels. He's he's using hyperbole. The greatest possible expression of this gift you could ever imagine. What would that say about me? Where would that put me in the rank of the believers if I had that gift of speaking not only in the tongues of men but even in the tongues of angels? And the point he's making is that the gift to speak any language on earth or even any language in heaven, if it isn't used and motivated by agape... It's as pleasant and useful as a clanging gong, a a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, Paul there might be actually intending to make an allusion to what pagan worship services, idol worship services look like because they did have a lot of noisy, clanging, you know, they used gongs, they used cymbals. These were things they used in pagan worship to make a lot of noise and it was very chaotic. And he's saying, "Your, your worship sounds like pagans. Maybe what he's intending to say here. But let me ask you, have you ever been to a gong and cymbal concert? Nobody's ever been to a gong and cymbal concert? Why not? Because those instruments are useful as small complementary parts of a large orchestra, but nobody would listen to gongs and cymbals for 20 minutes or 40 minutes or an hour. 
It's a very harsh and annoying and disconcerting sound if that's all that you have. They're monotone. They don't, it's not music by themselves. And that's Paul's point. That's what unruly worship in the church in Corinth sounded like to God when they abused the gift of speaking in tongues in the way that they were using it. See, as we're going to see, Paul is making the point that agape, the love that he's talking about, this new kind of love that the world doesn't know anything about, agape desires the good of others. It's driven to serve the needs of others, to build up the body of Christ. That's why Paul will say in the next chapter, in chapter 14, verse 19, talking about the abuse of the gift of tongues in the church in Corinth, he'll say, in church I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. Because the purpose of the spiritual gifts is to serve others and to build up the church. That's the purpose of the gifts. And so Paul says, I'd rather speak five words that you can understand in your own language than 10,000 words that you don't understand. Because that's not why the gifts were given. Not only was speaking in tongues not the sign of super spirituality, using the gift of tongues in a prideful and selfish way was worthless in the sight of God. It's of no benefit to you. It made nothing of you as a person using that gift if you used it selfishly or pridefully. Secondly, Paul moves on to the next gift that was at issue in Corinth. He says here, the gifts of prophecy and knowledge are nothing without love. Now, when we get to chapter 14, he's going to be saying that the gift of prophecy is so much more valuable to the church than the gift of speaking in tongues. And we'll look at why when we get there. And so the gift of prophecy was probably the most most valuable, in a sense, if you're just ranking the gifts of the Holy Spirit, he'll make the point that the gift of prophecy is maybe the most valuable gift of the, of the Spirit to the church because of what it did. But even prophecy, he says, without agape accompanying it, is of no value to the one exercising the gift. Paul is no doubt referring here to the supernatural gift that was given again during the first century, during the time that the apostles were here, until the scriptures were completed, the supernatural gift of being given revelation from God about his will or about the future, about his plan. These were, these were gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would sometimes give this kind of knowledge of revelation to believers in the first century until the scriptures were complete. And this is the gift that's, that Paul is no doubt referring to here because this would be flashy again. This would be impressive to men. And so they were using it for prideful reasons. And so Paul, you know, he, he again, he'll, he ups the stakes here. He says, he's not going to talk about just about prophecy as a gift of the Holy Spirit, but he's going to use hyperbole again. He's going to say, what if I not only received revelation from God, but was therefore able to understand all mysteries and all knowledge? You know, prophecy was just a little nugget of knowledge and wisdom from God, revealed by God to the prophet in the first century. He's saying, what if I could understand all knowledge and all mysteries? What if I was a super prophet? The greatest prophet the earth has ever seen. 
Understand that mysteries in the New Testament doesn't mean something that's really hard to understand. That's how we use the word, like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. That's, we're talking about something that you really have to think hard and be really intelligent to figure out. That's not what mystery meant in the New Testament. Mystery was something that God hadn't yet revealed, something that God had hidden, something that was not yet revealed to men. And so he's saying, basically, what if, what if not only I was given the gift of prophecy, but I was given the gift of knowing all mysteries and all knowledge. What if I knew all of God's secrets? What if I could explain the Trinity? What if I could get, tell you the, the origin of evil in the universe? What if I could tell you the purpose of all suffering on earth? What if I could tell you why mosquitoes are here? You know, all of God's secrets. Why? What if God had given me the ability to reveal all of God's secrets to you. What would that say about me? About my spirituality? About my importance in the kingdom? He says, you would be nothing if you don't have agape motivating you, driving you. If that's not the purpose of your heart. The agape that he's going to be describing Well, we do talk about a modern gift of prophecy, which isn't supernatural, and is most closely associated with what I'm doing right now, which is proclaiming the word of God to God's people. And I think the same principle applies. That's how we can apply this to today, even though that supernatural gift of direct revelation from God has ended. Proclamation of the word is still the prophetic gift of today. And here's what Paul's saying is, Even though the gift is extremely valuable because the word of God is valuable, if you don't exercise the gift with agape, then it's nothing. It means nothing. He says, I am nothing. He's not talking about the gift. The gift is very valuable. Proclaiming the word is extremely valuable. But the preacher, the one who proclaims the gift, is nothing if love is not the motivation, if love is not what is producing it from the heart. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1? He's talking about those that he was in prison, not able to be out there on the streets preaching the gospel. And he talks about some other Christians that were out there preaching the gospel. Remember what he said? He said, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. He's talking about preachers who are preaching the truth about Jesus Christ, but they're preaching it out of a heart filled of envy and rivalry towards him. And he says, in that context, he says, you know, it doesn't matter. Christ is proclaimed, and for this I rejoice. You see, he rejoices that the message of Christ is getting out. There's value in the message, but he doesn't address what about those who are preaching it, not out of love, but out of envy and rivalry. And I believe, putting together what he says here in 1 Corinthians 13 with what he says in Philippians 1, he would say, those people are nothing. They're of no rank in the kingdom because they are preaching the truth but they're doing it out of sinful selfish prideful reasoning not out of agape the kind of love that he's talking about the issue isn't the person using the gift the issue the the issue isn't the gift itself it's the issue is the person using the gift what is driving it the third issue he deals with the third gift he used deals with is the gift of faith The gift of faith, he says, even faith to do great miracles, is nothing without love. He says, if if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
Now, this isn't, as we saw a couple weeks ago, this isn't saving faith that he's dealing with here. The Holy Spirit gives saving faith to everyone who truly believes. He's talking about the gift of faith, which is given to some believers, which is the faith to do great miracles. In other words, supernatural things that that a believer might be enabled to do in the first century when miracles like this were common in the church. The gift to be able to do miracles by great faith. He says that kind of a supernatural gift, he says, if it's not used in love, you gain nothing. Now again, Paul uses hyperbole here. It's the same hyperbole that Jesus, our Lord, used in Matthew 17, verse 20, when he says, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, and you say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And so Paul says, what if I'm that guy? I'm that guy that has such great faith that I can do the greatest of all miracles that Jesus talked about, which is to tell a mountain to move from here to there, and it would actually happen. And that I could do all things. Nothing would be impossible for me because I'm the greatest miracle worker in the history of mankind. What if I was that guy? He says, if I don't have love, if I don't have agape in my heart, it's nothing. I'm nothing. It means nothing to me personally. The miracle might be great, but I am nothing. Miracles were signs. Miracles were given as signs, not to promote the person who did the miracle, but to point to Christ, to point to the gospel. And that's the most loving thing we could ever do, is to point people to Christ and to the gospel. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about great miracle workers in the church. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, some of these miracle workers are going to come to me on the last day, on Judgment Day. And they're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works, mighty signs in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There will be great miracle workers on Judgment Day to whom Christ will say, I never knew you. You're not part of my kingdom. Doing great miracles in and of itself, says nothing about the one who had the gift of doing great miracles. Without love, it's nothing. And then the fourth gift that he talks about is the gift of self-sacrifice, the gift of giving, the gift of helping others. He says, and this is where it really tests our understanding of what love is. He says, if you have the gift of great self-sacrifice, but you don't have love, then you are nothing, and you gain nothing. If I give away all I have, he says, but have not love, I gain nothing. The verb in the original Greek contains the idea of feeding others. And so what he's saying there is, if I give everything, if I were to distribute all of my material wealth and and possessions so that I could feed the poor, that's really what's being referenced here, but I don't have love in my heart, It gains me nothing. You say, well, wait, didn't Jesus tell the rich young ruler to go sell everything he had and give it to the poor and then he would come and follow him and he, he would be great in the kingdom? Isn't that what Jesus was implying? Paul goes on to say, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. 
If I were to give up my life itself, the most precious thing I have, if I were to give it up for others, but not have love, I gain nothing. You see what I'm saying? That really tests our understanding of what love is. Because I've heard Christians say many times, you know, in reacting against what the, the world's misunderstanding of love, we'll say, love is not sex, love is not sentimentality, love is not a feeling. We'll say, what do we say? Love is an action. Love is sacrifice. And Paul says, no, love is not sacrifice. Because you can sacrifice your goods, you can sacrifice your wealth, you can even sacrifice your life, but not have love in your heart. And if that's the case, then all of your sacrifice, even life itself, is worthless and you gain nothing in the sight of God. So love is not equal to sacrifice. Love is not equal to any action that we do. It's about the state of your heart. The agape love that the New Testament talks about. So, as the band foreigner would say, I want to know what love is. What is love? What do we learn from what Paul has said here? What is agape? What makes agape different than eros or phylos or storge? What makes agape so different? And why is it so essential? Let's go to another passage, go to another apostle, the Apostle John. I think the quintessential definition of agape is found in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Listen to what John says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Agape is from God. It's not from this world. You can't find it in this world Agape is from God. It comes down from above. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's a profound statement. Listen carefully to what he's saying there. I'll read it again. Whoever loves with agape love has been born of God and knows God. In other words, if you're not born again, if you're not regenerated by the Holy Spirit, if you're not a true believer in Jesus Christ, you are not able to, to have agape in your heart. Agape is something that comes with regeneration. It comes with being born again. Somebody who's not a true believer in Jesus Christ, who's not born again of the Holy Spirit, cannot love in the sense that we're talking about love. Agape, love. Anyone who does not have love does not know God because God is agape. God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay, he's going to point to where, where it's, what's the definition of agape then? Here's his definition. Not really the definition, but here's how we see it. This is what it looks like. In this, God made his love manifested among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is agape, Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the the sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God that our sins deserved. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. God loved us by sending his son to die on the cross as a sacrifice that turned away his wrath 
fulfilled the punishment that our sins deserved. He saved us, redeemed us by the blood of Christ on the cross. That's the epitome of agape love. And he says, now that you have known that kind of love, go out and love other people with that same kind of love. That's agape. To understand agape, you have to understand the cross. In order to understand agape love, you must understand the cross. And to receive the gift of agape, that kind of unique God-sourced love, to receive it, you must believe in the message of the cross. Those who have not been born again do not know this love. Romans 5, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's agape. While we were still shaking our fist at God, rebelling against him, hating him, running away from him, he sent his son, his own son, his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, he sent him to die on the cross for our sins. That's agape. Let me try to define that then. If that's what love looks like, what is agape? Agape is this concern for others that flows out of the nature of the giver and is not based in any way upon the worthiness of the beloved. Agape is the kind of love that flows out of the very nature of the one giving it and has no relation whatsoever to any merit or worthiness in the one receiving it. That's what the cross was about. That's why Jesus said in John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. What an odd thing for Jesus to say. I mean, Moses wrote the first books of the Bible. He said all the way back in the beginning that that that's the law of God, as it were, to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, love one another has always been around. What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm giving you a new command to love one another? Well, he goes on to say, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus has upped the stakes. The cross is the definition of what love looks like. And he says, that's your standard for how you're to treat other people. Not based on any merit or, or worthiness in them, but only in this new supernatural ability to love that the Holy Spirit has planted in your heart and has begun to nourish in your heart. That's agape. When it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we're talking about in chapter 12, and the love, the gift of love that the Holy Spirit gives to all believers, here's a way to look at it. The gifts are tools that are given to believers to equip them to fulfill their calling on earth. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, whatever they are, are given like tools to the believer so that they are equipped to do the calling that the that the Lord has given to them, that the Lord Jesus has given to them. Agape, on the other hand, is what Galatians 5 would call a fruit of the Spirit. Matter of fact, it's most, the most important fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are things that every born-again believer has at least in seed form. That every believer has growing within them because the Holy Spirit is in them and with them. He has regenerated them. He's given them a new heart, a new heart that by nature begins to show these fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's something that flows out of the heart. The fruit of the Spirit grows out of the heart. 
And love is the greatest of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's agape. These are the character traits that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit plants within every single born-again believer, and they flow out of the nature of the giver. That is the heart behind true speaking in languages. That's the heart behind true proclamation of the truth. That is the heart behind doing any great deeds in the name of the Lord. That is the heart behind any act of self-sacrifice, even giving up your life itself. Agape is the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. Christ-like love for God and for your neighbor. And so Paul's point in, this, in the beginning of this passage is that we do not measure our rank in the kingdom. We do not measure our place in the church. We do not measure our importance. We do not measure our spirituality by the gifts or the tools that the Holy Spirit places in our hands to do the work that we've been called to do. If you want to measure each other, you probably shouldn't be doing that anyway, but if you want to measure each other, measure it by the amount of agape flowing out of the heart. Because that's what God looks for. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. You know what makes you something in the kingdom of God? The love that flows out of your heart for God himself and the love for your neighbor, that's what makes you great in the kingdom of God. You know what gives you gain in this life and in the life to come? The love that flows out of your heart for others. The Christ-like love that is based in the born-again nature of the believer, not in the worthiness of anyone who receives it. That's what gained you for now and for eternity. I'm going to close with a definition of love, agape love. I've studied the New Testament for my whole adult life. And over all that time, I've come up with a a definition for agape love that really helps me, and I hope it helps you too. Here's what it is. Agape is finding your joy and satisfaction in helping others to prosper in the eyes of God. Agape is finding your joy and satisfaction in helping others to prosper in God's eyes. Now, I put that last phrase on there because sometimes loving others means not doing what makes them prosper in their own eyes. You know what it is. If you're a parent, you know what that looks like. You don't make your children, you don't work to make your children or help your children prosper in their own eyes. That would be a disaster because their perspective is so off. You're trying to help them prosper in God's eyes from his perspective. What's truly good, what's truly noble, what's truly right That's what you want your children to prosper in. Well, that's the way you should treat everybody. You want to see them prosper by God's definition of prosperity, by God's definition of maturity. But don't miss the first phrase in that definition, that you find your joy and satisfaction in it. Because so often we think, that's that's the problem of saying, well, love is self-sacrifice. And the the image you get is that if if love is self-sacrifice, then I'm gritting my teeth and I'm... You know, really, really making this huge sacrifice, and I'm giving it against everything I want. I'm giving up something to give to somebody else. That's not love. That's the way the world loves. Or, okay, I'll, I'll give you this big thing. I'll, I'll give you this to help you prosper. 
but it's because I'm going to get something back in terms of my earthly reputation or my earthly place in the company or my earthly status in the family or to get you as a friend or, you know, all the different worldly, selfish, prideful reasons you might do acts of self-sacrifice towards others to help them prosper. No, it's finding your joy and satisfaction in seeing another sinner prosper. And that is what Paul says is great gain. That's treasure. That's storing up treasure in heaven. That's what your life should be about. And if you're finding your joy and satisfaction in anything else, whether it's your job, your family, video games, school education, reputation, sports, if you're finding your joy and satisfaction in anything else above loving God and loving your neighbor, then you are missing out on the treasure of heaven. That's where you gain. That's where you become important. Is by doing that by the Spirit's enablement and the Spirit's empowerment, diligently, faithfully, for the rest of your life. And you will be great in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to talk about love because... People talk about it all the time, and yet there's so much confusion about what it really is. Father, thank you for some time that we're going to spend this week and next week in 1 Corinthians 13. Thank you for this revelation, this inerrant description, definition of love. Help us to understand it more deeply. Help us to purge out all the wrong understandings that our culture has has immersed us with. Lord, teach us. Enable us to love others as you have first loved us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.